Coloradans are about to choose who will hold the state's top jobs and potentially which political party controls the U.S. Senate for the next two years. You hear the Senate candidates for both major parties tell you what they would do in their own words. You're listening to Who's Gonna Govern from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Today, Michael Bennett. He's the Democrat running for re-election to the Senate, where he has served since 2009. I interviewed him September 28th. Senator Bennett, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you again. One of your signature issues during your time in office has been the expanded child tax credit, which provides families with children monthly payments per child. It has been said to have kept 3 million children out of poverty, but the expansion has since expired. You've been trying to make it permanent. Where does that effort currently stand? Thank you for the question. We were able to reduce childhood poverty almost in half last year and and reduce hunger in the United States by a quarter as a result of the child tax credit, and 90% of Colorado's kids benefited from it. I'm fighting hard to try to make it permanent. As you said, I've been having discussions with Mitt Romney, who has a similar proposal to mine. He's a Republican from Utah. And my hope is that in the lame duck session after the election, we're going to be able to come to a bipartisan agreement about how to extend the child tax credit. I may not get every single thing that I want out of that agreement, but that's the nature of, of, of coming to a bipartisan agreement. And, and I'm working as recently as this morning to see if we can get it over the finish line. Turning now to inflation, you've said yourself it is a major concern for many Americans, including Coloradans. And there are many factors considered responsible for the rising inflation rates. But the Federal Reserve has said that COVID relief aid, which you supported, was a possible reason for rising prices. And some economists and lawmakers also worry that making the child tax credit permanent would lead to even more inflation. What is your response to that question? I would say on the child tax credit, I strongly disagree with that. I, I wish that families which were getting an average of $450 a month um, had that today. They, they were getting $450 a month a year ago, had that money today to defray the cost of gas, to defray the cost of of food. I mean, today, the uh, gas is three seventy six a gallon in Colorado. The cost of eggs is just over $3. The cost of bread is, I think, $1.70. These are very, very expensive. And if families had the benefit of this tax credit, it would defray, it would have defrayed those costs. And it would not have been inflationary because it was paid for. So, um, so, so that's, um, that, I think that's just a false argument. And of course, the benefits to the 90% of kids in Colorado that got it and, and, and the poorest kids in America who got it, I think it's hard to overstate those benefits. I've talked to mom after mom after mom who said that the, the relief that they have felt and their families have felt as a result of the child tax credit um, uh, was incredibly important to them. And that's not surprising to me because, Chandra, we've had an economy that for, for 50 years has worked really well for the top 10% of Americans and Coloradans and hasn't worked as well for everybody else. And even before this inflation that we're facing today, uh, people were struggling with the rising cost of housing and healthcare and higher education and early childhood education. It's a struggle for people, you know, to feel like 
they can stay in the middle class or for the families I used to work for in the Denver public schools who feel like, you know, no matter what they do, they have a hard time keeping their kids out of poverty or if you're lifting their kids from poverty. So um, I think this was a struggle before we were facing the inflation we're facing now. The inflation is a struggle for families in an economy that's already tough for them. I think what we need is we got to fix these supply chains that have created this inflation uh, all over the world. And we've got to create an economy in America again, that when it grows, it grows for everybody, not just the people at the very top. Continuing on with inflation, Democrats recently passed the Inflation Reduction Act that includes a number of provisions like lowering prescription drug costs for Medicare beneficiaries, reducing the deficit and investment in renewable energy. However, even the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said it will have a negligible effect on inflation this year and next. Is this enough to combat inflation? I don't, I don't think it's enough to combat inflation, but it's an important step toward um, dealing with the problems that I was just talking about a minute ago in terms of rising costs for families. I mean, we, in this bill, we cap the cost of uh, drugs for seniors at $2,000. We require uh, Medicare for the first time to negotiate drug prices for uh, for the American people, and we cap uh, insulin at thirty five dollars a month for seniors. We were trying to cap it for everybody at thirty five dollars a month, which would have made an immediate difference to many people that have use insulin in Colorado and across the country. But unfortunately, the Republicans oppose that. My opponent in this race says there's nothing to like about that bill, even though it does all of those important things with respect to health care. And then on top of that, it puts America in the position to lead the entire world in the, in the uh, transformation that we're going to make over the next several decades uh, to a clean energy economy. And I'm, I'm very, I think that's going to be very good for Colorado's economy in the medium term and in the, definitely in the long term. Now, if this is a first step, what should be done next? Well, I think it, I think passing the child tax credit at the end of the year would be extremely helpful to defraying the cost uh, of the cost of inflation, and I think uh, bringing our bringing our supply chains back to this country is what we really have to do. I mean, if you look at every single country in the world right now, every industrialized country in the world, anyway, we're facing almost the same inflation rates in Canada, in the EU, in in uh, in, uh, in even in India, and uh, the reason we're facing this is because these are global supply chain problems that are related to the COVID epidemic and the recovery of the economy and rising oil prices and energy prices as a result of that recovery, which has then been compounded by Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, and 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 which has also dramatically affected um, food prices. And that, that explanation, I know, is cold comfort to people that are paying the kind of prices I was talking about earlier for gasoline and for, for bread and, and for other things. But that is fundamentally what we have to do is bring these supply chains home. And we've just done that, not in the Inflation Reduction Act, but in the, uh, in the CHIPS Act, which is recognizing that 95% of the most important semiconductors in the world uh, that, that are critically important to our automobile sector, but also uh, for our fighter jets, are all produced in Taiwan in a bipartisan way. We've, we've, we're going to bring that back. I think we have to look at other supply chains as well to try to um, guard us against uh, the, this kind of 
inflation. It, the other thing I'm working on right now, Chandra, is a bill with a, a Republican colleague of mine to try to resolve the issues that we're facing uh, with respect to uh, agriculture. Part of the inflation that we've seen in the country is the result of there being an absence of labor in, in agriculture. And if we can pass the Farm Work Modernization Act through the Senate and get it signed by the president, that could help us lower some costs. Continuing on with an earlier point, the Inflation Reduction Act includes a sizable investment for renewable energy, but the fossil fuel industry is a major part of the state's economy. How do you propose helping communities that rely on this industry to make that transition? Yeah, I mean, I've long said that there is no way that we're going to make any progress with in, uh, on climate without addressing um, the needs of places like Craig, Colorado and, and Meeker, Colorado in, in the northwest part of our state. Uh, I, I think that it's a fool's errand to try to make progress without doing that. And, and, and the, some of the provisions that I fought for in this bill are directed exactly at trying to help those communities. There's billions of dollars in this bill uh, for direct pay so that uh, our rural co- energy co-ops are going to be able to help, are going to be able to benefit from uh, tax credits that historically they haven't benefited from, that uh, that for-profit entities have benefited from. They're now going to benefit from that. That's going to be a big deal for Tri-State in making its transition. Uh, the, the, the millions of dollars that's in this bill for rural communities to, to transition from um, from the place they are to a cleaner energy economy, and a recognition that um, this is not, uh, transition is not going to happen overnight. One of the reasons it's been difficult to make progress is that the opponents of, of making progress claim that uh, we want to turn fossil fuels off today or tomorrow. And that's not true. You know, we know every study that, that, uh, uh, Every study that tells us that we have to transition for the sake of our climate acknowledges that in 2050, even when we have to be at net zero, we're still going to be using fossil fuels in this country. And I think the Inflation Reduction Act reflects that. It imagines that. In a way, it explains that. And I think it's the reason why uh, Mitch McConnell will never be able to reverse it, uh, because it is so important for our solar industry. It is so important. For our for our wind industry, and it does give certainty to you know our fossil fuel industry that they're going to be around for a while as well. Which and anybody who cares about keeping Europe in the fight against Putin uh, uh, for the benefit of Ukraine needs to realize that our exports of liquefied natural gas from the United States is going to be an important part of 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 that battle. So I think what we've done with this bill is we've passed a bill, unlike our current lack of an energy policy, which is inflationary, which is bad for our national security, and which is terrible at reducing emissions. We've now passed a bill that I think over time is going to be better on cost, is going to be really good for our national security and our economic independence, and is going to be and is going to reduce emissions, some say by 40 percent by 2030 over 2005 levels. That's a lot of progress, and that is, um, you know, puts the United States in the position uh, to lead the rest of the world in this transition. I don't think any country is better situated to make this transition than we are, and part of that is because of um, of what of the fossil fuels that you described. 
Continuing on with an earlier point you made, one area that you've been trying to find common ground on is immigration for farm workers, specifically in the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. If passed, it would help Colorado's agriculture industry by capping wages, increasing the number of H-2A visas, and providing a pathway to citizenship. The House passed its version of the bill last year. What is preventing the Senate from getting this done? Unfortunately, um, I have one Republican colleague that I've been working with this bill on for months. What's preventing it is that there are Republicans in the Senate that just want to continue to pound the bruise of the southern border and 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 use it for political benefit in this election cycle instead of addressing the problem, which is what we need to do. And when you see people, these governors sending um, migrants, you know, to other states, uh, that's not anything that's going to help with this situation at the southern border. I've been critical of the Biden administration. I don't think they have a plan on the southern border either. And as you said, I've worked for many years on this issue. I mean, in 2013, I, I was one of the eight people in the Senate who wrote a comprehensive immigration bill that we passed, the Gang of Eight bill, with 68 votes in the Senate. It had a pathway to citizenship for 11 million people that had the most progressive DREAM Act that had ever been written and had 40 billion and did dealt with the agriculture issues that we're, we're now trying to deal with. Uh, and it had $40 billion of border security in it. But it wasn't wasn't for, you know, Donald Trump's medieval wall. It was for 21st century border security that would let us see every inch of the border. That's what we have to get back to again. That's what we have to figure out how to how to how to come together on because we're damaging our economy. I mean, we have farmers and ranchers in Colorado who are having to get out of their 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 businesses because they can't hire people. And that is a disaster for America because if you look at our economic growth over time, we've grown about 3% uh, GDP every single year, year in and year out. 2% of that has been organic and 1% of that has been immigration. Now, speaking of governors Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, do you worry that they might do something similar in Colorado considering some referred to places like Denver as sanctuary cities? They'll, they'll do whatever they think is in their narrow political interest. It's not in the country's interest. And, and I hope that, they, you know, I hope they won't. In 2018, you and 86 of your Senate colleagues voted for the Criminal Justice Reform Bill, the First Step Act, which was signed into law by Donald Trump. Given the rise in crime and fentanyl, was that bill a mistake? Oh, I absolutely don't think that that bill was a mistake. In fact, I think we should do more to reform our prison system. The mass incarceration in this country is a stain on the on the on the on the United States of America. We have a system of mass incarceration that um, looks different than any other, almost any other country uh, in the world. So I think there's more we need to do to reform our system. Uh, I do think it's important for us to deal with the scourge of fentanyl. In our society, we've got to work with our allies to uh, push back on China, where the precursor chemicals are made, and on Mexico, where the fentanyl actually is made, to try to keep it from uh, pouring into our country, uh, which, which which it's now doing. The other thing we have to do is we have to make sure that we have a criminal justice system that 
where where people can actually recover from their addictions, not are put out on the street in even worse shape than they went in to begin with. And that's something that I think, you know, we haven't really done as a society. I think it'd be an important step forward. Back to the First Step Act. If you don't support harsher sentencing, what is your answer to rising crime rates? Well, my answer to rising crime rates is that we should prosecute people that have committed crimes and we should and and we should do everything that we can do to try to get people recovery if they are addicted to drugs, you know, if they're addicted to opioids and other kinds of drugs. Fentanyl obviously is a different kind of drug than than those, but I think that's that's where our focus needs to be. And I, you know, I, I think we have to su- make sure that we support police officers who are doing this very, very difficult work. That's why I just voted for a 30% increase in the cops uh, money here in Washington, D.C. as part of the American Rescue Plan. Now, moving on to abortion. After the Supreme Court handed down a ruling reversing Roe v. Wade, you said now was the time to elect Democratic lawmakers to enshrine abortion access on a federal level. But Democrats have held majorities in both chambers and held the presidency several times since. Why hasn't Congress been able to accomplish this 30, 20, even 10 years ago? Well, I think, first of all, it really wasn't um, it really wasn't an issue before the Congress, because uh, Roe versus Wade had established a fundamental constitutional right to choose in this country. And that was the law for 50 years. And I don't think anybody around here thought that the Supreme Court, uh, at least until very recently, would ever reverse that fundamental right or, or strip the American people of that fundamental right. Now we know that 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 the plan all along for the last 40 years by Mitch McConnell and his Republican allies, in fact, was to strip the American people of this fundamental freedom, this fundamental right. And that's why I think it's vitally important that we elect pro-choice majorities to the Senate and to the House and Mm. to the State House in Colorado as well. So we can enshrine a woman's right to choose as the law of the land. Now, speaking of elections, if reelected in November and if you serve out a full six year term, you would become Colorado's longest serving U.S. senator in the century since state legislatures stopped selecting senators. You spend a lot of time talking about how the Senate is broken. But what would you serving another term do to accomplish fixing the problems you say persist? Well, first of all, I have talked a lot in the time that I've been there about how the Senate is broken because for a lot of the time that I've been here, it, it has been broken. It's been broken because of the obstruction of Mitch McConnell. It's been broken because of um, the chaos that Donald Trump rained down on the United States of America. And it's been broken for other reasons. You know, like the fact that 50 percent of the people that leave here and don't retire become lobbyists in Washington, D.C. So there are a lot of reasons why it's been broken. But let me say, over the last year, we've made a lot of progress. We passed the American Rescue Plan. We passed the bipartisan infrastructure law. We passed the bipartisan postal reform bill. We passed the bipartisan gun safety law. We passed the the veteran, the most important extension in veterans benefits that we've had in a generation. We passed the bipartisan CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which you and I have been talking about. So literally in the last year, 
uh, we've been able to get a bunch of things done that's more than we've been, been able to get done in a lot of years that I've been here. And I've made big contributions to each of those laws from the Inflation Reduction Act, where I years ago proposed um, uh, the Medicare negotiate drug prices on behalf of seniors, you know, my $60 billion in the infrastructure bill to build broadband based on the work that the Delta Montrose Electrical Association did on the western slope of Colorado, the billions for western water infrastructure for forest health, for cutting climate pollution. So that's just this year, you know, and um, my hope is that if I come back, I can help, you know, uh, ensure that together we can build an economy, as I said earlier, that when it grows, it grows for everybody, because I think the economy we have today is a threat to our democracy, because too many of our families feel like no matter how hard they work, they can't live a middle class life or they can't lift their kids out of poverty. And I think, you know, in addition, it would be important for us to make sure that everybody in America has the chance to vote the way people uh, in Colorado have the chance to vote so they can fully participate in this democracy and in this economy. Uh, and I, you know, all of the bills that I've written over the years are bills, whether they're to protect public lands or they're related to energy or they're related to healthcare, all of them have been bills that I've written in Colorado, not in Washington, D.C. And I think that's a perspective that um, that I, Washington, I think, has benefited from. You have talked about all that you have accomplished, but the Republicans have noted that you have not been able to pass the Child Tax Credit, the CORE Act, past efforts on immigration, and they are saying that this shows your ineffectiveness in Congress. What's your response? I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I think actually that list of things proves that I've been effective. There isn't anybody else in the Congress who can claim that their bill last year reduced childhood poverty almost in half to cut uh, hunger in America by a quarter. There's not a senator for generations who can make that claim. And I'm fighting, unlike my opponent, I'm fighting to try to make that permanent. Do I have to overcome Joe Manchin's objection? Yes, but am I fighting for the most significant tax cut that working people have had and that we actually did pass uh, in generations? Uh, I am. I when When there was an opportunity to build a bipartisan consensus in the Senate to pass immigration reform with 68 votes, I was one of the eight people that did that. Now, I, I'm sorry that the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party uh, prevented it from getting passed in the House of Representatives. And I'm deeply sorry that the Republicans elected uh, a, a president who was as anti-immigrant as Donald Trump was and has made it as difficult for us as a country to succeed at this. But I can assure you that when we do succeed at this, I will be in the middle of that. Uh, and then on public lands, you know, this is, uh, I have been fighting for the CORE Act for more than 10 years over Republican opposition, the most important public lands bill that if we pass it, that Colorado has seen in a quarter of a century. But it doesn't have to do with my effectiveness that it hasn't passed. It hasn't passed because the Republican Party has turned itself against, uh, in the na at the national level, against public lands and refuses to move public lands bills. And that's why I'm working with the Biden administration to see if there might be an administrative way for us to at least protect Camp Hale before the last veterans who trained at that incredibly important, iconic place in Colorado and in our country 
have the chance to see that it's going to be preserved. And by the way, in the meantime, uh, I did just pass one of the very few public lands bills in this Congress that has passed, which was the bill to protect Camp Amachi on the southeastern plains of Colorado. So I think I'm one of the most effective senators in the place. And I know some people probably think the bar is pretty low, and I think that's pretty fair. But every day that I've come to work, I've tried to do that work uh, in the name of the people of Colorado, whether they voted for me or whether they didn't vote for me. And if I'm reelected, that's what I will continue to do. Senator Bennett, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, John. Michael Bennett is running for re-election to the U.S. Senate. We spoke September 28th. He is a Democrat, and he's been in the Senate since 2009. Hear his opponent, Republican Joe O'Day, right now in the Who's Gonna Govern podcast feed. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield with thanks to Carla Jimenez. This is CPR News and KRCC. Need more info to help you figure out how to vote? The ballot is a lot to get your mind around, with big offices up for grabs and 11 statewide questions about whether to cut the income tax, legalize psychedelic mushrooms in Colorado, and much more. CPR News is here to help. Read explainers for each ballot measure and learn about the candidates, including the one you just heard from, in the 2022 Voter's Guide, online now in English and Spanish. Go to CPR.org.